welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. You looked at your bulletin, you've already seen today's message and its title, It is not good for man to be alone. Statement probably rings a bell for most of us. You're asking yourself, where have I heard that before? Probably won't take you long to realize that that title is from the creation account of Genesis. I stole it from Genesis. Don't worry, I'll put it back afterwards. It'll be fine. And in fact, as we open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4... Over the last few weeks, you've probably come to notice that many of the themes that we are offered by this writer originate from the book of Genesis. Solomon is doing this on purpose. He's employing a literary device that just means a form of of writing called allusion. Not illusion, but allusion. Solomon is purposefully and repeatedly calling our minds back to the creation account in Genesis, back to the beginning of man. When we first started Ecclesiastes, I directed your attention to how the Hebrew name or the Hebrew word translated vanity or emptiness. It's the same name, same word as the name Abel. Abel was Adam and Eve's son who was murdered by his brother Cain. Abel's name in Hebrew means breath or vapor. And Solomon's intent is to establish for us that life, like that of Abel, is like a breath. It's here today. It is gone tomorrow. It's unpredictably temporal. Then in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we listened as Solomon described how he had built a garden. His garden contained parks, vineyards, ponds, forests of trees. And then he described how he irrigated the, this, this garden that he built. I didn't draw attention to it at the time, but that word irrigate is the same Hebrew term that is used in Genesis to describe the Garden of Eden, whom God caused... In Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, a mist to rise from the earth to water or irrigate the whole surface of the ground. So Solomon is alluding to how he as a man, created in the image of God, behaves as a reflection of God through creating and building a garden. But Solomon's life was marred by sin. Worldly pursuits, worldly manifestations of wine, women, and song. Uh, Therefore, his life remained meaningless to him. And just as seen in the Garden of Eden, Solomon's sins caused him to experience no pleasure in the garden, no enjoyment at all in the garden that even he himself created. I think it's pretty cool. Scripture is incredible how, how it folds into one another in, in describing uh, the work of man and the work of God, the, the onset of sin in the garden, the remedy for sin coming from God. Then, as a consequence of sin, 
Solomon concluded the the last several weeks that the best we can do is just enjoy what God has given us. Food and drink, the fruit of our labor. Uh, God gave us labor. It is good. It is a gift from God, he shows us. Then finally, last week in chapter 2, verse 20, we found that uh, we will surely die. All came from the dust, and we will all return to the dust, and your spirit will return to God who gave it. That, of course, alludes to Genesis 3, verse 19, where due to man's sin and God's curse, from the ground uh, from which you came, to it you will return, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. The wages of our sin, uh, what we earn from our sin, those wages is death. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned, therefore men, all men die. All men and women die. Ecclesiastes, it's like a, a, a faded or a foggy portrait of the book of Genesis. Allusions pointing back to Genesis. Today Solomon is going to do it again. We find another allusion to Genesis in our passage. For even before man's fall into sin, God told us, God declared, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore God promised to give man a companion And God formed every beast from the ground and brought every species of beast to Adam uh, so that Adam could give each a name. Um, Two things are significant there. First, bringing the animals to Adam was significant because in his naming them, uh, God would show that that man has dominion to rule over the animal kingdom. Secondly, parading each and every animal, every species of animal before Adam, was designed uh, to prove to Adam that there was no suitable companion, no suitable partner to be found amongst the animal realm for him. God didn't bring the animals before Adam so that Adam could choose one of them, but so that Adam would eliminate every single one of them, and recognize that none of them fits the bill. That dog might serve as a friend, it might protect, protect our homes, herd our sheep, or behave as a guide animal for a blind person, yet beasts are never a suitable mate, nor designed by God to serve as a lifelong companion for man. For a suitable companion, God created woman. Woman, also created in the image of God, and to increase companionship even further, he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's Genesis 1.28. So even prior to the fall, it is not good for man to be alone. That's before sin entered the world. Even in a fallen state, we still need one another. And once sin entered the world, mankind once again experienced what it is like to be alone. He became alienated from God. He he became alienated from his wife. All due to sin. And man became alienated from man. So that now all human relationships are marred, they're, they're tarnished. 
they, they are uh, scarred towards gravitating towards a rivalry and envy of one another. And, and as a result, rather than man loving his neighbor as himself, man views his neighbor as a competitor. It's pictured in, in Cain and Abel where, where Cain envied his brother Abel and he murdered him. In this fallen state, we, as I said, still need one another. When we isolate ourselves from one another, we suffer. When we behave as rivals, we suffer. Our experience on earth would be far better, far better if men and women could set aside our preferences and live in harmony. Live in harmony, embrace harmony for the benefit of the many. Because it's not good for man to be alone. Follow along from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and I think you'll begin to see the picture. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry. Your translation might say envy. Between a man and his neighbor, this too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity. And it is a grievous task. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily or not quickly torn apart or easily broken. This passage contains a valuable lesson for each of us, for our families, for our careers, even for the church. In fact, it really applies to every facet of life, society in general, but this specific lesson is meant to apply and improve yours and my experience on a personal level. Our lives can be improved through this today. Uh, the same can be, uh, could be said of the next passage that we're going to, to, to look at next time. It advises an older generation to adjust and to make room for a younger generation. That will begin by describing an older king who will no longer receive instruction and therefore is destined, we'll see, to become irrelevant and replaced by the next generation whether he likes it or not. But this material here in chapter 4 through the end of this chapter, it's immensely practical. It's very personal uh, to our lives and to the life of Christ's church. But the first lesson today in verse 4 is going to address the vanity and the, and the emptiness, emptiness that is manifest in a rivalry, in an envy between a man and his neighbor. The passage suggests virtually every skill, every energy that we exert, 
all that we do, it's affected by envy. It's affected by rivalry. Redeemed Christians, we still, we still battle with the sinful flesh. And we should be careful to recognize that due to pride, arrogance, and selfishness, life's pursuits are often affected by erroneous motives. We need to be suspicious of the flesh. Fallen man leans towards working really hard at outdoing his neighbor. Whether it be the farmer, the businessman, the educator, whoever it would be, we really don't like the idea of the person who lives across the road getting ahead. Really don't, that doesn't really just sit right with a fallen heart. And due to sin, we virtually uh, view all others as, as competitors rather than companions. You know, life is the chicken wars, right? I'll admit it. I love Popeye's new chicken sandwich. It's incredible, spicy. You'll see advertisements from Wendy's and McDonald's addressing this chicken by claiming that theirs is better. Then you got Chick-fil-A. I think they've been standing on the sidelines. I could be wrong. I don't know how the marketing is working over there. You can ask Nathan. But it doesn't appear to me that Chick-fil-A is even addressing this. They're just standing back. They're letting the others duke it out. It's because they're long established as the gold standard. And to jump right into that tussle, it's just going to lower them into the sphere of mediocrity. They just say, we'll just stand off to the side. But I do assure you, everybody is watching everybody else, all the competitors across the road and what they are doing. Life is a competition. Weighing the competition is often a a matter of survival. I like free market competition. It results in more options of delicious chicken. But when our personal efforts... When they are exerted due to a desire for what our neighbor already possesses, due to envy, jealousy, covetousness, when we want what he or she has, we can never be content. We will never enjoy contentment with what we already have if we're always looking at what our neighbor has. Solomon says, this too is vanity. It's striving after the wind. Philip Reichen writes this, Envy is not the only reason that people work, of course, and if we took this verse by itself, it would seem like an exaggeration. There certainly are some exceptions that prove the rule. But the preacher still has a point, referring to Solomon. One of the reasons we work so hard is to get what our neighbor has. Good point. And a covetous heart is a isolated and a lonely heart. It's not good for us. It's not good for those around us. Certainly we are to do the best that we can with what we have. Be excellent in what you do. Learn from what your neighbor does. Be teachable. Receive instruction. Solomon is going to speak about next time. Make your chicken sandwich better. Do the best you can. But don't set your heart on that which already belongs to your neighbor. Don't look at what they have and want what they have. Scripture says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, 
his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Good advice there. Do not covet. Can envy infiltrate churches? Infect churches? Oh yeah, it can. Uh, Even churches can fall into envy and rivalry to the point of even sheep stealing. You heard of that? Sheep stealing? It's especially common in smaller towns where the population is limited. Especially common after church splits where the competition will sometimes build a nicer sanctuary in order to woo some of the people from the other church. I haven't sensed that spirit here. Competition with other churches. And I'm glad. Instead, we actually encourage people to look at other churches when they're new visitors here. See what's out there. I would rather people see what's at the other churches before locking in here. If that person would be happier elsewhere, I'd like them to find out right away. It's good for them. It's good for us. But take a look around in Port St. Lucie. Look at what we see. Is there any shortage of people to be one to the gospel? Is there any shortage of people to invite to church? No shortage at all. Uh, plenty of unchurched people in Port St. Lucie for us to reach. From envy, verse 5 turns our focus to the different results of varying effect of effort. Varying effects of varying levels of effort. First, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. In the rat race of rivalry, these folks, they just drop out altogether. Like, we're we're not going to compete. We're just going to hang around. It's not good to be rivals, they might say, so we just won't try too hard. Like with businesses, churches can fall into this as well. You know, we just kind of do uh, the minimum that we can. That describes the Proverbs 6.10 sluggard, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. The mindset that, that exerts no effort, doesn't want to try, uh, therefore it experiences no reward. No effort, no reward, and he brings himself to ruin, literally. He consumes his own flesh. Folks, you got to try in life. You've got to give effort. You've got to go after those goals. Churches can't just tread water and hope they keep their head above water. They've got to go out and win souls for the gospel. We've got to win people to Christ. Two options to the one who never tries are found then in verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Again, these describe a man or woman's attitude uh, towards labor, towards, towards work, towards effort. And everyone makes a choice. You can be the workaholic. You can have two fists full of labor, attempting to acquire everything that your neighbor has and experience no rest, no enjoyment. That that doesn't sound like contentment, does it? Better off is the person who has one hand full of rest. Your translation might say quietness or, or peace. The man who has one hand full of quietness Riken again says this about verse 6, 
this beautiful comparison is built on a double contrast. Quietness is contrasted with toil and striving. A good synonym is contentment. The quiet person is peaceful and composed. Rather than always striving for more, he or she is satisfied already. Solomon is urging a peace, a satisfaction with that which you already have. It's better than striving to acquire what your neighbor has. And in verse, then in verse 7, Solomon provides this illustration. He's going to emphasize the point he just made by supplying us this illustration in verse 7. He says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent. It means he lived and he worked alone, having neither a son nor a brother. Yet there was no end to all of his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. The ESV translates it as a miserable business. The man's involved in a miserable business. The conclusion of Solomon's lesson is this greedy person who who never has enough, is never satisfied, can never work enough, He's going to wake up and realize that life is meaningless when you work incessantly to accumulating wealth that is neither shared nor enjoyed. Neither does he share it with anyone, nor does he enjoy it. It's it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's emptiness. Folks, what a wasted life of being alone. What a wasted life of not sharing with others. We often refer to the guy in verse 7 as, as being married to his work, right? Never stops working long enough to enjoy anything that he has or to give any of it away. It would be better, says Solomon, to enjoy some quiet rest. Yet all of the above scenarios that we've looked at, every single one of them, describe the experiences of people who work alone. Those who strive alone. I don't believe that Solomon is criticizing nor condemning the sole proprietor in this. I don't believe that at all. Instead, he is exposing the flaw of someone who never allows himself or herself to become interdependent with others at any level. Never allow themselves to rely on anyone else. He's the loner. He's never had an apprentice because... That apprentice initially will slow you down. Never hires an assistant because that would cost some money. Never forms a partnership because then decision-making would have to be shared. He works hard, but he works alone. It's a lonely life. It's a lonely life. Fortunately, there is a better way. There's a better way. Listen to Solomon in verse 9. I love this. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. The ESV study Bible has this note that says, The wise person will pursue cooperative ventures rather than give in to jealous striving to be first. A striving that isolates him from others. 
means cooperative ventures of working together bring in good returns. There's a good return from shared labor. It's what Solomon sees. You often hear this passage uh, read at weddings. Quite often, it describes the husband and the wife who work together to earn and then raise a family. They get a good return. But the passage is not specific in any way to a husband and a wife. A father and son working in cooperation. They get a good return for their labor. The sisters who start a business together, they too get a good return, as do the brothers who form a partnership. When you can put aside rivalry and envy of one another, pursue a common goal, to go after it together, not only do you accomplish more, the load is lighter. The load is lighter. In fact, the illustration of the person working alone in verse 8 that experiences uh, the grievous task, that can also be translated, he carries a heavy burden a heavy burden alone. His is a miserable business, as the ESV says. Um, where else is this applicable? Where else can you find this? Not only in your job and in your work and in your family business and in your family. It's Christian ministry. Christian ministry. You know, a lot of young pastors start out with energy. They have a lot of passion. They have a lot of strength. And they're determined if they can just get started in a, in a small church somewhere. They can be that solo pastor and working alone. They can make all the decisions that they want all by themselves. What do they discover? <laughs> they discover ministry becomes a heavy burden. It can be a miserable business. Working alone in, miser- in, in ministry is misery. It truly is. Uh, there is no working alone. In a church environment, it's neither efficient nor is it enjoyable. Yeah, folks, you just don't get much done. You really don't. Pastor Weiler and I can tell you, you don't get as much done alone. This doesn't just affect pastors either. Uh, many people think you know, that they, they just want to get a start on their own ministry. I want my own. I want something that's my own. It'll be mine then. Just doesn't just doesn't work well. It never gives a good return. You know, there are all kinds of people. Since we're here on the topic, I'm, I'm just going to, to draw um, attention to it. There, there are all kinds of people out there who just want to avoid church. They want to avoid the people of church in an attempt to do Christian ministry alone. I would advise against that. I truly would advise against doing that. Uh, It is kind of pandemic in the U.S., but you can't accomplish much in ministry apart from the body of Christ. You can't work alone just to avoid people. In fact, most church ministry decisions require pastors to assess uh, how a decision will affect everybody else in the church. It's always coming up. Pastors and elders... They really have to assess everything holistically. In, in, in a group picture, uh, you can only burden your volunteers so much before they burn out and they leave, especially in a small church. It's tempting to try to do too much and people become crushed under the weight of activity. There are challenges 
in organizing church activities. You see it in all different facets of life. You've got retired people, young, healthy, retired people, and you've got families with a bunch of kids around. The healthy, retired person has a lot of time on their hands. They want to do more. The working families who are working long hours and have four to six kids at home, they conclude if, if, if there's anything more added to our schedule, the pressure is just going to have to cause us to bow out. They can't take any more. You have some people that cannot tolerate any change. No change whatsoever. I don't like change. You've got other people say, if something doesn't change, then I'm going to leave. <laughs> and you've got to find a way to help people to work together because we know if we do, we're going to have a good return for our profit. A good return for our labor. Folks, that's ministry. If you're an employer, you, you face similar challenges We try to do simple things well. We try to spread the burden around, the weight around, and permit our people at the same time to keep one hand full of rest, maybe half full of rest. In my opinion, this is is from my heart. In my opinion, working with others is far better than working alone. Far better. I saw it growing up in the farm, Saw it at Delta Airlines when I was there. Now in the church, two are better than one. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. One generation needs another. One generation has experience. Another generation has youth and strength. One of the best examples that I can share is, is working with Pastor Weiler. It, it is true. Two are better than one. There are certain things I cannot do or cannot do well there that he can do. We do things well together. I hope to encourage him to excel. Two have a good return for their labor. Having an associate pastor is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together to keep warm, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? This does not describe myself and Pastor Weiler at all. I don't know what the interpretation of this passage is. I don't have a clue to what it means. I, I, don't, I don't know where it comes from. Now, we usually apply it to a husband and a wife, which is true. But if you traveled in the ancient world and you went from place to place without hotels, without motels, without any place to lay down, it probably applied in a more practical sense as well. Um, The reality is, this is just the fact, people are safer and stronger and warmer when they travel through life together. If you recall from my scripture reading earlier, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled together. Even when they experienced a dispute and they decided to go their separate ways, they each took another to travel with them, to strengthen the churches. We often think of Paul you know, as a loner, that he was out on his own as a loner. But if you closely look at the narrative of his life, 
You follow it along? <laughs> Paul's rarely alone. Even during his last imprisonment, Luke remained with him, and Timothy was called to join them. Well, what else? In verse two, or in verse twelve, if two are better than one, three who can work together are even better than two. For if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's not quickly torn apart. Often the illustration of the three-stranded cord is to embellish, embellish many specific things, and Scripture doesn't imply it in that way, not towards specific things. But the context makes the interpretation very clear. There is strength in numbers. Strength in numbers. Douglas O'Donnell, writing for the Reformed Expositor's Commentary, makes these comments. The threefold cord is not the Trinity. The threefold cord is not, as Jewish rabbis would teach, knowledge of the Scripture, the Mishnah, and right conduct. The threefold cord is not a husband, his wife, and God, though it admittedly sounds good at weddings. Rather, the threefold cord is simply a statement that we all know to be true in the most dangerous and difficult situations, and for everything from work to warfare, there is comfort, success, and safety in numbers. If the companionship of two people is beneficial, how much more so the fellowship of three? And in this way, while the original context is clear, the universal, universal application is elastic. Stretch it into your marriage. Stretch it around your workplace Pull it into your church. Isn't that good? O'Donnell continues by saying, Pastor Solomon's commendation of community is a welcome antidote to the individualism that infects every local church, just as the body of Christ does not consist of one, but uh, many members. We need each other for service. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head, uh, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We all need one another. Folks, it is not good for man to be alone. Though sin has alienated man from God, husband from wife, man from his brother, as we saw in Genesis, Christ through his blood has redeemed us from the curse of sin and death and has reconciled us all together by one Holy Spirit being baptized into one church. For since by a man, referring to Adam, came death by a man, uh, came death by a man, speaking of Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first, after that those who are Christ at his coming. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one. And now, Christ having died for our sins and having forgiven us our trespasses, we can now forgive those who trespass against us, showing the love to others which he showed to us, and we no longer rival. We don't have to envy But we have the spirit of love to share with our neighbors rightly and to 
invite all to repent and trust in the name of Christ. In the garden, sin caused separation. Mankind became alienated. He became alone. But reconciliation to God and man are now offered to all through faith in Christ alone. Therefore, says 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might could become the righteousness of God in him. God said in the very beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, God did not leave us alone. I'd like to close this prayer with all of us praying the Lord's Prayer today. Might as well stand. We're going to sing, right? Let's stand and say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.